Well, you are doing so much better. Second weekend, you're finding the beat, aren't you? It just took like one week, and by next week, we'll have it down. So uh, again, if you're new, my name's Michael. I'm one of the pastors. I'm going to go into our time of teaching, and I, I need to apologize about something. I, I took some grief this week because uh, uh, people said, I was hearing this week reports, you told us that when you got into metamorphosis, you would tell us what happened to you right? And you, and you didn't tell us. Like we started it last weekend. So that was just miscommunication on my part. What I meant to say, what I was trying to say is once we get into the series, at some point in the series, I will tell you. So just keep on coming. But, uh, but I, I, I promise you it won't be long. So you don't want to miss an extra three weeks. All right. So uh, anyway, we're going to go into our time of teaching, and so inside your program is a green and white message note sheet. I encourage you to take that out, especially if you're new, it's how help you follow along. And if you guys are ready, we're going to jump in. You guys ready to go? Okay, let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here in your place, uh, underneath your name, underneath your leadership. Lord, we just acknowledge you, King Jesus, as our Lord, King of our lives, the one who rules, our ultimate authority. And as we come today, we come underneath your leadership. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be here as you promised he would be to lead us, to guide us, to open our eyes, to challenge us, to transform us, to be the people that were created to be. So we pray that you would speak, that we would listen, and as always, we would listen and follow. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Well, our story starts today uh, on the coast of the Mediterranean. And it's a beautiful capital city, and he's come here uh, not, uh, not of his own will. He's come here not like many others for recreation. He's come here not for a vacation. He's come here not to see the beautiful sights, but he's come here under protest. He's come arrested. In fact, he's been here in prison for the last two years, uh, held on fraudulent charges that he, that he has not been able to really answer to. And he's been held here for, in captivity for two years against his will, really for political reasons. But today's a big day in his life because today he's gonna get an opportunity to go before some of the top authorities and to present his case to make his defense against these fraudulent charges. And so as he's sitting in his cell looking forward to going before these high-level uh, high authorities and, and even foreign dignitaries, uh, he is looking forward to this opportunity to tell his story. And so as he's sitting in his cell, the cell that's been his home for the last couple of years, he's just making some notes. What should I say? How shall I approach this? I have limited time. It's not like I have unlimited opportunity. What parts of my story should I tell? What parts should I leave out? What will be most effective? And so as he sits there in his cell, he knows that within hours, he will be summoned into the courtroom to make his case. And the question is, what shall he present? Well, today, we are continuing our series. It's called Metamorphosis Face-to-Face. -face. If you're brand new, we just kicked this off last week. And so if you, if you missed last week, I'd really encourage you to go online and check out the message at YouTube or, or iTunes, kind of get to speak with later foundation. But this is a series that's based on a letter from a man that's one of the key leaders of the early movement of Jesus. His name is Paul. We call him the Apostle Paul. And he's writing to a group of Christ followers. He actually led to Jesus about five or six years before uh, in a major, uh, major Roman capital, the capital city of, of a, a town called Corinth, which is in uh, southern Greece, modern southern Greece. 
And one of the key, uh, one of the key words that Paul uses in this letter uh, to this, uh, the, these Corinthians um, is, uh, is it, the, the word, the Greek word metamorpho. And this is a word that speaks of change or transformation. In fact, it's, it's the word that we use uh, in our culture today. It's where we got our word metamorphosis from. It describes a slow but gradual profound change. It's the word we use to, to describe the transition a tadpole goes through to become a frog or a caterpillar to become a butterfly. But it's also the word that Paul is going to use. Can you all hear that? Guys, we had noise backstage or we had some singing going on or something. Maybe you're continuing in worship. Uh, I don't know, we'll do some more worship later. Good, that sounds better, all right. All right, so. Uh, yeah, so this word metamorpho is also the word he uses to describe the, the kind of the, the, the gradual profound change that we go through when we come to Jesus and enter into what uh, Paul will describe as a face-to-face relationship with God where we are transformed as we listen and follow the work of his spirit in our life. So if you heard last weekend, uh, we, we, we kick off this series by taking a quick look at Corinth, the ancient city of Corinth, which is the backdrop of this whole series. And then we took a look at Paul's first visit there when he came and spent about a year and a half there sharing the message of Jesus and, and kind of like the first pastor of this church. And today we're actually going to, to jump in into the first uh, couple verses of this letter. So if you have your uh, Bibles, if you have your apps, let's open up, turn them on to, uh, to Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And verses one through two, and we're just gonna we're gonna jump in. So 2 Corinthians chapter one, verses one and two. And so it starts off, it says, Paul, a what? what a what? What's the next word? An apostle. I'd like you to underline that. It's gonna be a key word today. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy our brother. So remember when, when Paul first came to Corinth, last week you saw this. When he first arrived there, he was part of a three-man kind of leadership team. It was, it was Paul and then later on joined by Silas and Timothy. So they knew Timothy from the start. He had been there for that first year and a half. He had also been sent back once in the last four or five years to kind of help the church back on track. And so they know Timothy. So when Paul writes this, he's writing from northern Greece and he's with Timothy at the time. So he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. And it's to the church at Corinth. Now, we need to break this down some. If you're familiar with the letters of Paul, if you ever read them, you know, they often start kind of a similar way. Here's who it's from, here's who it's to. And it often sounds a little foreign to our ears because it's very different than the way we would write letters today. But it was actually like the normal way you would write a letter in the Greco-Roman world. Here's who it's from, here's who it's to, and then kind of an opening greeting. And uh, so he says that to the church of God in Corinth. Now, we wanna break down some key words just real quickly. That word church, uh, in the Greek, the, the word for church is the word ekklesia. And, uh, and so uh, in our world today, the word church, it sounds churchy, right? It sounds religious. But in the ancient world, the word ecclesia wasn't religious word at all. It was a word that's just referred to an assembly. Like for example, if the, uh, the citizens of Corinth got together for a vote on something, that would be the ecclesia of Corinth, right? So uh, it was also a word that was used in the Old Testament 
uh, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was most popular in the early church. You know, like here we use the New International Version. When the ancient, in, in the first century church, Church of Jesus, the most popular version of the Bible that was used was the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And I, I wanna mention that today because it's very important. Uh, we'll be talking about it a lot as we go through this letter, but um, this was the common version. You may have seen it abbreviated sometimes with the Roman numerals LXX, capital LXX, which is 70. Um, but anyway, this was a popular version. And in the Septuagint, which was the Bible of the early church, in other words, when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it's usually quoting the Septuagint. So in the Bible of the early church, um, the word ecclesia uh, was used often in the Old Testament to describe the, the nation of Israel when they would come together in assembly. And what I want you to catch is the word ecclesia has nothing to do with a building. Like in our world, we talk about church. Are you going to church? We think of a building. But the church is not a building. The church is the people of God. In fact, it's, it's like the new people of God following the Messiah, kind of the, 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 the true Israel who's accepting their Messiah, right? So, so it says uh, to the, the people of God, to the, to the ecclesia that's in Corinth. And as we learned last week, if you were here, remember Corinth was a very sophisticated, kind of a highbrow into philosophy, into public oratory, big into sports, beautiful architecture, very entrepreneurial, uh, sports craze, uh, and also sex craze, kind of the Amsterdam of the, of the ancient world, right? Anything goes. And so, um, and so, as we said last week, one of my favorite scholars characterizes Corinth as it's a place where LA meets New York meets Las Vegas. Okay? But unlike that, uh, what I say here, you can take outside. But uh, anyway, so it's to, the, it's to the, it's this people of God that are in Corinth, uh, together with all his holy people throughout all Achaia. So Achaia was the larger Roman province. In the same way that Sacramento is the capital of California, Corinth was the capital of Achaia, which takes in southern Greece. And notice it's addressed to the holy ones. And so uh, this is not language we use a lot. This is the Greek word hagias. It's sometimes translated in older versions like King James Version as saints. But that doesn't really communicate well because in our culture we use the word saint to describe a super Christian. And the New Testament, the word saint describes every Christian. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've been chosen out of this kind of fallen world uh, to live a whole new life, you've been separated to God, called to a whole new life, to live life as it was meant to be lived, son and daughter of the king, you're a holy one, you're a saint, right? Uh, and now he's gonna go into uh, the greeting. And so in verse two, he, he starts it like you would a typical Roman, Greco-Roman letter, but he's going to adapt it, customize it, to communicate the message of Jesus. So notice how he starts, verse two, he says, grace and peace to you. So in a typical Roman letter, a typical Greco-Roman letter, if you're writing in Greek, you would start off by saying, here it's from, and then you would use the word karain. And karain means greeting. So you'd say like, uh, this is from uh, you know, Michael David Yearly, lead pastor of the Church of Rocky Peak, karain, which is like greetings, or hey, or how you doing, right? 
Uh, Paul is going to adapt that, so instead of saying karain, he's going to say charis. Same word, just a different form. But charis means grace. And then if you are writing, uh, and then he's gonna say peace, because this would be a typical Jewish greeting. If you're writing to Jews, what would you say? Your first thing would be what? Shalom, peace, and of course it's written in Greek, so it'd be arene, but so you see grace and peace. So you got the Greek, kind of a Greek greeting and the Jewish greeting. But here's what I want you to catch. These two words are like windows into Paul's soul. His mind is thinking. And in many ways, these two words sum up the whole message of Jesus, don't they? Grace and peace. That The message of Jesus is that in spite of our rebellion as a race, God has loved us, come after us, pursued us as we worship this morning. We talked about that. He's pursued us and he's made a way for us to be forgiven and to come home, not based on our achievements, but based on Jesus' performance on the cross. So our whole relationship is based on grace. And as a result of God's grace, when we come to Jesus, we enter into this new relationship where we're no longer enemies of God, but we're now sons and daughters of the king. We have peace. And so grace and peace kind of describe the message of Jesus in a nutshell. And he says, but this grace and peace that comes to you from God our Father, since we've entered into this new relationship with God, he's now our Father, we're his sons and daughters, and it also comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, every three, one, every three of these words is significant as a title or a name. So Lord, in the Roman Empire, Caesar was Lord. In fact, when you'd worship Caesar, you'd burn a pinch of incense and you'd at the, a temple of Caesar, and you'd worship him as a god. You would, you'd say, Caesar is Lord. But for the early followers of Jesus, they couldn't say Caesar is Lord. And, and so they believe that because of his life and death and resurrection, Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God. He is now king or Lord. He's the ultimate authority over all creation. All creation reports to him now. And so for the Christians, Jesus is Lord. And so when you became a Christian, you were baptized, this is, we believe, what you would say is that not Caesar, no, Jesus is Lord, right? And then, of course, Jesus is his, his personal name, but this was the name the angel gave him. Remember when, when uh, the angel came, he said, you will call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus means Yahweh is salvation. And then Christ, remember, Christ is the Greek version of the Hebrew Mashiach or Messiah. And so Messiah, the great king that would come from the line of David. So Christos is that Greek equivalent, the anointed one. And so when you say Lord Jesus Christ, you're, you're giving his title as king of king over creation, the Messiah of Israel, the one who's come to save us from our sins, uh, Yeshua. Jesus, right? So what I want you to catch is in these introductions of Paul, when we read them, it's very easy just to read over them quickly uh, and just kind of almost skim over them. They sound, they sound foreign, sound familiar. But that actually, these intros are like a, a window into Paul's uh, Paul's thinking, his message, his, his world. There's like, think of each of these words, you're looking out, you're seeing into kind of a whole new world that it reveals. In fact, these seven words, uh, they kind of, these seven words we just went over, they, they really uh, describe kind of the story of Jesus, the story of our salvation. So you think about them, grace, peace, and ecclesia, the church, the new people of God, and Father, 
Lord, Yeshua, Jesus, Christos. This kind of tells the story of the message. And of course, Paul could go on and on about any one of these words and, 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 and talk about it a lot. And he does in other places. We won't do that today. So, so that's the introduction. But what I want to do today, the, the greeting uh, Paul gives, but the, what I want to do today is I want to focus on one key word that goes to the heart of this letter and understanding the message of 2 Corinthians, what their situation was, but also goes to the heart of our understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and also what it takes to experience metamorphosis, God's vision in our lives, all right? And that's the key word, apostle. And this is why I had you underline it at the start. Let's look at it again in verse one. It says, Paul, a what? An apostle of Christ Jesus. And then what does it say next? by the will of God. God. Uh, very important, you might wanna underline that whole thing, an apostle by the will of God. This is very unusual. This is, Paul doesn't normally introduce himself uh, by such a lengthy title, apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. But this gives us a hint, a tip of where this message is going. Often in Paul's intros, his messages, you get a sense of where this letter is going. And this is definitely one of those times. Because one of the key issues that they were dealing with in Corinth is authority, spiritual authority. How do we know what is right and good and true? What is Paul's uh, role in communicating that? And so what we're gonna see today that, that the, the role of apostle was a very important apo- uh, 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 position in the life of the early church and also in our lives today. And so there in your note sheet, there's a section called what's an apostle and why does it matter, All right? And so let's jump in. Let's talk first about about the word apostle. The word apostle in English comes from the Greek word apostolos, right? So the Greek word's apostolos. The verbal form of that is apostello. And to apostello means to send with a message. Like if I sent you on a journey uh, and I said, here's a message, and uh, maybe it's a letter or whatever, there's a message, and you take it to this person, you would be an apostle. So in the ancient world, apostle didn't necessarily have religious connotations. It was just someone sent with a message. Just like ecclesia wasn't a religious term for church, it's the same with apostle. Uh, But the one place it was used a lot in the ancient world was in the Greek Septuagint. Remember that Greek version of the Old Testament that we talked about? that in the Septuagint, apostle was used, the word apostle or apostella was used a lot, and it was used to describe anyone sent with a message. It didn't have to be like a spiritual message, just could be any message, Um, but uh, at times it was used to describe someone who is sent by God with a message, And so this is the, the sense in which it's used in the New Testament. For the most part, not always, but for the most part in the New Testament, apostles a term to describe someone who is sent by God with a message of some sort. And the first time that it's used in the New Testament is in the Gospel of Matthew, the very first book in the New Testament that describes the life and teaching of Jesus. And I want you to turn there in your Bibles or on your phones or whatever tablets. Let's go to uh, Matthew chapter 10 and verse two. We'll start at verse one, actually. And I want you to see, so remember when Jesus launched his ministry, you may, rem- you may remember this that very early on that Jesus recruited 12 followers. You remember that, 12 disciples? 
And it's, the number 12 is no accident. It's like, uh, it's like the rebirth of the nation of Israel with the Messiah that's coming, right? That they're kind of the Messiah's people of the nation of Israel. And so um, he, he recruits these 10 followers and their disciples, and their job was to be with him, to travel with him, to understand him, to know his mind, to become friends, uh, and, and just to know him, but then also to join him in his calling to share the message that the long-promised kingdom of God, that the prophets had promised Israel, was breaking into human culture, that, was, that, that, that the kingdom was near. And so in chapter 10, he actually, they've been traveling with him a while now, he actually authorizes them to speak for him and to, to speak. So he's been healing the sick, he's been uh, freeing people of demonic uh, activity, and so he gives them that same power and sends them out to speak with his authority that the kingdom of God is here. And so notice how it says in chapter 10, so Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and he gave them authority, so he shared his authority, uh, to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. And these are the name of the 12 what? Apostles, right? So right now, these are the name, these 12 are the name of the 12 apostles. And so these apostles become very important people because they're the people that are with Jesus, know Jesus, are authorized to speak for Jesus, and after he leaves, after his death and resurrection, he leaves, he, he sends them out, commissions them to speak with his authority. This is why in the New Testament church, we're told in Ephesians 2, this built on the apostles, the foundation of the apostles, right? So I want you to think of these 12 apostles, and of course we lose one with Judas, but we still call them the 12. Uh, like it's just weird to call them the 11. But uh, so um, we're, we're gonna call these apostles with a capital A, all right? These are the apostles with a capital A. And the reason I say that is we're gonna see that there were other apostles in the New Testament church, but they didn't speak with the same authority. They weren't commissioned by Jesus. These were just people sent out by the church to take the message of Jesus where it had never gone to start new churches and share the message of Jesus, right? So there's apostles with a capital A, the 12, and there's a pot, they, they speak with Jesus' authority, and there's apostles with a small a. And their authority is a derived authority. Their authority comes from the message that they are given to deliver, that's from the apostles, with a capital A. So you'll see this distinction, for example, um, in the passage on your note sheet, 1 Corinthians 15. If you're here at Easter, you'll remember this. We looked at this passage. It's a passage where Paul is writing to the church, Corinth, same church we're talking about, uh, about why the resurrection of Jesus is so central, the linchpin of our whole faith. And uh, we're breaking in the middle, but I want you to see something. He says it's very helpful. He says he, talking about Jesus, he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and according to prophecy, and that he appeared to Cephas. And remember, Cephas is another name for whom? Yeah, Peter, right? The, the leader of the 12 apostles. Uh, and, and then to the whom? The 12th, so circle that. He, so he, he appears to Cephas, which is his Aramaic name, like his Jewish name, um, whose name is, other name is, his Greco name, his uh, Greek name is Peter. So he appears to Peter, and he appears to the 12, the rest of the 12 uh, disciples. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. And then he appeared to James, that's the half-brother of Jesus, who becomes the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. And then to whom? To all the apostles. So you see that distinction? How, how Paul separates between 
the 12 and the rest of the apostles. Different level of authority, different level of role in the leadership of the early church. And he said, and last of all, he appeared to me also. Now, of course, this was after Jesus had returned to his father, right? This, so, so Paul did not know Jesus during his earthly ministry. He didn't travel with him, but Jesus appeared to him after the resurrection, but after he'd returned to uh, his father, he appeared to him. We're not sure the time frame, six months, two years, we're not sure exactly, but it was after the movement of Jesus was launched that Paul met the resurrected Jesus, just like the 12 and just like these other witnesses. And in this meeting, here's what's important. Jesus commissioned Paul like a prophet of old to speak for him with his authority, like apostle with a capital A. Uh, and so this takes us back to the story we started the day with. We started the day with the story of this man who's come to Caesarea, not to see the sights, not for vacation, not to relax in this beautiful Mediterranean uh, coastal town. But he comes there uh, under protest, he's arrested. He had gone to Jerusalem where he was arrested under false charges and then transferred to the capital of the province which was Caesarea. So the province was Judea. So just like Corinth was the capital of the Roman province of Achaia, uh, um, Caesarea was the capital of the Roman province of Judea, where Jerusalem also was, but it wasn't the capital for, for Roman purposes. So he'd been brought there, but he'd been kept in prison for two years for political reasons. But on this particular day, he's going to get to go before not only the Roman governor who rules in Caesarea, a man by the name of Festus, but also between a very distinguished couple that's visiting Festus, a couple named King Agrippa and his wife Bernice, Queen Bernice. And so they're gonna come together. So what's happened is that Paul is so frustrated being in prison for two years, he has appealed his case to Caesar. And so as a Roman citizen, he has a right to appeal to go to Rome for his case heard. So that's gonna happen. But because the Roman governor Festus has kept him under false pretense, he can't send Paul off with a lame excuse. He's gotta like make a good case why this case is being transferred. And so he wants to get King Agrippa and Bernice, who are kind of experts on Jewish affairs, he wants to get their take on what he should say in this letter so he doesn't look like a fool when he sends this off to the Caesar. And so there's this big pomp and circumstance uh, uh, council meeting or court meeting where Paul's gonna be brought in, it's full of dignitaries, and Paul is gonna have a chance to tell his story and make his defense. And we're breaking into the middle of this, but I want you to see a couple of things he says because this is so important in understanding Paul's understanding of who he is, what it means to be apostle, what it means for the Corinthians to listen to an apostle, and what it means for us today to be under apostolic authority, right? So there in your uh, note sheet, you have this long passage. We're gonna go through it quickly. Uh, this passage, by the way, this event happens about four years after Paul writes the letter of 2 Corinthians, three or four years. And so he's talking to the king, uh, Agrippa, and his wife. He says, I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus the Nazarene. So remember, before he met Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, Saul was a bitter enemy. He was a hater of Jesus. He thought Jesus was a total imposter and fraud. And he said, indeed, I did, I did that in Jerusalem. Authorized by the leading priests, I caused many believers there to be what? Okay, sent to prison. 
and I cast my vote against him when they were what? Condemned to death. So he was part of the the execution of that. Many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to what? To curse or blaspheme Jesus, depending on which version you have. So uh, I want you to visualize this. This is a big deal. Before he comes to Jesus, Paul hated Jesus. He saw him as a fraud, and he saw that Christianity as a serious threat to the faith, he, the true faith of, of God's people. And so he would actually take his teams of like spiritual bounty hunters. He would go to synagogues throughout Jerusalem, maybe the surrounding area of Judea, and he would interrogate people suspected be followers of what we call the way, Jesus' followers. And when he would find them, he would even beat them, perhaps torture them, to try to get them to renounce Jesus and to curse Jesus, to blaspheme Jesus. And so he says, so uh, I was so violently opposed to them, I even chased them to foreign cities. And so one day I was on such a mission to Damascus, major city in Syria, armed with the authority and commission of the leading priests from Jerusalem. And about noon, it says about lunchtime, I was hungry, I remember. Uh, about noon, your majesty, as I was on the road, a light from heaven brighter than the sun shone down on me and my companions. Now, let me ask you, if you're a Jew and a light shows up that's brighter than the sun that knocks you to the ground, what do you know? You know God is there. The Shekinah glory, the Old Testament has many encounters like this. And so he's like, whoa, God's showing up. And so uh, we all fell down and I heard a voice speak to me in my native mother tongue, Aramaic, Saul, Saul. He calls him by his, his, like his mother's tongue, what his mother would have called him, Shaul, Shaul. Why are you persecuting me? Now catch this. Paul sees this bright light, brilliant light. He sees a person in the light. It's like a human being in the light. And he's asking, why are you persecuting? He knows it's God or a vision from God, but he is totally baffled. He has no idea who this person is, this brilliant person, this blinding eye. He has no idea who the person is. And so he asks, he says, who are you? And the answer he gets back is going to cause him to have to change his robe or his pants. <laughs> because this is the worst moment of his life. His life is going to flash before his eyes. Because the answer comes back, the Lord replied, I am Jesus. Like, oh, blank. Okay, I'm a goner. I mean, picture this. He's been torturing people to make them curse Jesus. And now you find out you're the wrong, the wrong side of the Messiah. What are you going to think? <laughs> you're going to think it's over. He's coming to take me out. But he wasn't coming to take him out. He was coming to reveal that he was the Messiah and that he loved Paul and Paul would never get over this moment. Like he says in Galatians 2, I'll never forget the one who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Like in this moment, he experienced the grace of God that everything says he should be taken out. For a Jew, there is no worse crime than to reject the Messiah, let alone persecute the Messiah. When later on in his life, when Paul will say, I am the worst of all sinners, sometimes people will say, oh, he's just trying to be humble. He's not trying to be humble, he's just telling the truth. For Paul, hey, what can you do? Hey, what, what's is sexual immorality, is murder? Like, like what's worse than killing the followers of the Messiah and torturing the followers. Like for him, there's nothing worse. And yet Jesus showed this love, this mercy, like we say around here. He doesn't care where you're coming from. He only cares where you're going. And he experienced the grace of God and led to this new relationship with God, a peace with God through Jesus. And so Jesus says to him, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting, now get to your feet, get up, for I have appeared to you, and here's why, I've appeared, like you've seen me in my, resur- you've seen me resurrected, right? You've seen me to, uh, you, to appoint you as my servant. Now don't miss that. The servant is a powerful Old Testament language talking about the top leaders of God's people. Uh, you know, that Moses, for example, was a servant of the Lord. Joshua was the servant of the Lord. This is like a prophetic calling, like, like Jeremiah had his prophetic calling, like Isaiah had his prophetic calling, like Ezekiel. The Messiah is revealing himself and calling him to speak for him, to tell people that he's alive and to share the message. He's commissioning Paul to be an apostle with a capital A. And so he said, I've appeared to you to point you as my servant and witness to tell, so tell people that you've seen me and tell them what I will show you in the future. And he said, I will rescue you from your own people, the Jews, and from the Gentiles. Yes, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who will be set apart by faith in me. That word set apart, sanctified, holy ones, saints in me. And so this goes, this goes to the heart of the issue of what much of 2 Corinthians is about. Um, you see, what was going on in Corinth is starting with 1 Corinthians, which remember was about 18 months, 6 to 18 months before 2 Corinthians. Starting in 1 Corinthians, there are some who are beginning to question Paul's spiritual authority. Is he really an apostle with a capital A? And by the time we get to 2 Corinthians, they were not only challenging it, they were re- many rejecting his authority. And some new, new apostles had come in, some new Jewish apostles claiming to be, Paul calls them super apostles, who are saying, you know, Paul was good to get you started in the faith, but if you really want to experience transformation, you need to listen to us, and here's why. And so this issue, this is why Paul starts the letter like he does, and says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. What's, what comes next? By the will of God. It's why he starts there, because this is gonna be a critical issue in their life. And see, so ask the question, well, why is this so important? Is this just an ego thing for Paul that they recognize his authority? And no, it has nothing to do with that. Here's the thing. 
that what Paul is claiming is to be an apostle of Jesus speaking for Jesus. In other words, to reject Paul is to reject Jesus. And if they don't see Paul as speaking with the authority of Jesus, then they will pick and choose what they listen to. And the end result will be their lives and their community will be a mess, which is what exactly is happening. It's why the church is such a mess, like we talked about last week, right? And so this, uh, this takes us to the heart of the issue of that church and one, it leads to one of the most important uh, issues in our lives, one of the most important questions for our lives as followers of Jesus and so there in your note sheet, there's a section called metamorphosis, the question of authority. And I wanna ask you today a simple question, but it's extremely profound. It goes to the heart of your relationship with God. It goes to a heart of your, uh, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And it goes to the heart of the process of metamorphosis, all right? So I wanna ask you a simple question. I'm letting you off easy today, only one question but it's a doozy, so don't loosen up, right? Don't get, okay. So here we go. Uh, here's a question, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you the question and then we're gonna unpack it together. The question is who slash what, who or what, is your ultimate authority? Okay, in your life, uh, who or slash what is your ultimate spiritual authority? In other words, uh, let's break to, so why do you believe what you believe? You know, about God, about your relationship with God, about who you are, who God is, about how a relationship with God works, about how to live life, uh, what will lead to life to the full. What is your ultimate spiritual authority? Well, let's put it a different way. What, why do you believe certain things are true and certain things are false? Why do you believe that certain things are right and certain things are wrong? Why do you believe certain things are good and other things are evil? How do you make those decisions? What is your ultimate authority in life? Now see, this was the, this was the reason the Corinthians were struggling because they were accepting Paul's teaching on some levels and then rejecting it at others, which was leading to so much confusion. So let me, let me share with you kind of Paul's assumption about spiritual authority, all right? And this, is, this would be Paul's assumption. This would be the Bible's assumption. This would be Jesus's assumption. All the same assumption about spiritual authority. So let me just kind of walk you through real quick. Right? So here would be it. The Bible assumes, Jesus assumes, the apostles assume there's only one God, right? And, the assumption, and, and they all assume that God has revealed himself throughout time, especially through the nation of Israel, through a long line of prophets and priests and poets and kings and others, and that the ultimate revelation of God and truth and the path to life comes through the person of Jesus, who is God's ultimate word, as, and then through his apostles that he commissioned to speak for him to kind of tease out and explain the meaning of his life, death, and resurrection, right? That's the biblical view. So for example, there are your note sheet. We could look at a million verses that underline this, but this is one of the best. Hebrews chapter 11. Remember, Hebrews is written after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So it's written many years later. Uh, it's looking back on that, and he's writing to Jewish Christ followers. Okay? So he says, in the past, 
God spoke to our ancestors, talking about the Jewish nation, through the prophets at many times and in various what? Various ways. So you just think of the story. He spoke to Moses through the burning bush, and he spoke to uh, he spoke to Abraham through visions and through uh, uh, encounters. He spoke to uh, Joshua through kind of the, the voice of the Spirit. He's, he, like he spoke to the prophets through visions, and all he's saying is just saying, "Hey, in the past, God has spoken to our answers in a wide variety of ways through different prophets." And he says, um, but in these last days, and from a biblical New Testament standpoint, last days is any days after the coming of Jesus, right? So he says, he's spoken to us in these last days through his son. Right, so the son is the ultimate revelation of who God is and the path to life. So you think with me like John chapter one, you're familiar to many of you. In the beginning was the world. Let's say in the beginning was the what? The word, yeah, the word, the ultimate communication. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. If you skip to verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, the glory of the only begotten son. You skip to verse 18, no one has seen God at any time, but God, the only begotten, has revealed him, right? He's spoken through his son. Think of Colossians chapter two. In him, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and, now this is the biblical view, right? This is the assumption that God has spoken, uh, that he has revealed himself along, that Jesus is the ultimate revelation. This is the biblical assumption. It's something that Jesus shared. If you study the life of Jesus, you'll see that for him, his ultimate authority was the Hebrew scriptures that God had spoken. They had to be fulfilled. He said it over, they predicted his life. He said at one point in John 10, well the scriptures cannot be broken. Like we all agree to that, And so, and then Jesus went on to talk about he being the ultimate revelation of who God is. When you look at Jesus, you see the Father, right? So he said, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. Remember what he said, I am the way, the what? the truth, not a truth, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So this is his claim, right? So this is the biblical claim. This is a biblical truth claim. It's a truth claim of the prophets. It's a truth claim of Jesus. It's a truth claim of the apostles. And it's a big truth claim, isn't it? It is a huge, that there's only one God and he's revealed himself in this way. That is a huge claim. But for me, when someone makes that claim and then rises from the dead, their stock goes up. (laughs) All right? Their credibility is a front. This is another reason why the resurrection is so important. So for me, if you were to ask me, what is your ultimate authority, your ultimate spiritual authority? Why do you believe some things are true, some things are false? Why do you think some things are right, some things are wrong? Why do you believe some things are good and some things are evil? I would say that Jesus is my ultimate authority and his word where he's revealed himself. It's my ultimate authority. But that's my answer. (laughs) I didn't write this question for me. 
I wrote the question for you. And the question is, who or what is your ultimate spiritual authority? And when I say you, I don't mean you all. <laughs> like we're in Texas or something. I mean, no, like I, if I could take the time, I'd say you and you and you and you. Because here's the reality is that when we come to the end of our lives, we're all going one-on-one -on -one with Jesus. We're not gonna have a spouse, a best friend, not gonna have kids. It's not about what we all, it's about what do you believe apart from anyone else? You alone, what do you believe when on college campus? What do you believe when you're in the workplace? What do you believe when you're making your decision? What's your ultimate authority? Now, we're gonna come back to that question in just a minute, but I wanna do a quick sidebar. And what I'm gonna do is I wanna go back to a passage that we looked at last week, both in our weekend services and in our life group study this week. And it's there in your note sheet, it's the other place in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul uses this great word metamorpho, for you know, metamorphosis. And, and so remember what we learned last week, Paul's writing the church at Rome and he says, do not conform to the pattern of this what? Okay, let's think, do not conform, think jello, right? So like when you pour jello, hot jello into a mold, it conforms. It becomes like what it conforms to. So um, he says, don't conform to this world. Now in the Greek, it doesn't actually say world, it says this age. So in, in biblical thinking, there's two ages, there's this age and the coming age. And so um, I like to use the word culture, all right? Don't conform to your culture that you're a part of, whatever the culture it is. Don't conform to your culture, um, but be what? Transformed, remember metamorpho. Uh, we're gonna be transformed by the renewing of your what? Your mind, that's how it happens. And he said then you'll be able to test and approve I like the word kind of prove or demonstrate, like, you, like you, you experience it in your experience. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So in other words, again, God has a will for your life. It's good, it's pleasing, and it's perfect. But to experience it, you have to be transformed from who you are to who you were created to be from who you are as partially messed up person. <laughs> we're all there, right? To who we are created to be. In other words, we are wrong in many ways. The way, we, the way we think right now, you, me, everyone in this room, we're wrong on a lot of things. We're right on something, we're wrong. And in order to be transformed, we have to have our mind renewed so we no longer think like this, we think like this, and we can't think like the culture, we can't let that dictate, because it's wrong on so many things. And he said that if that happens, if you allow yourself to be transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit in your life to change the way you think, then and only then will you experience God's will, which is good, which is pleasing and perfect. This is what the Corinthians were not doing. On many issues, they thought like Christ, but on many other issues, they thought like their culture. 
And as a result, they were not being transformed. They were not experiencing God's will. Their lives were not good, pleasing, and perfect to God. They were not like they were created to be. They were messed up, as we talked about last week, in a wide variety of ways. Relationally messed up, relational with God, their pride, their arrogance, their sexuality, their finances, um, the, their, um, kind of their, their uh, in, uh, interpersonal squabbles, um, still involved in pagan temples, um, wrong what they think about God and the resurrection. They're just kind of messed up. The way they measure mature, they're messed up at so many levels because they're thinking like Corinth, not like Christ. And so we come back now to our question then. So my question is in your life, and I really want you to zero it. And what I'm gonna ask you to do today is to be radically honest with yourself. I'm not gonna ask you to be radically honest with me or with anyone around you just with yourself. Because for many of us, we know the right answer, but the right answer is not necessarily the real answer. And what matters is not the right answer, but our real answer when it comes to metamorphosis. And so the question I'm gonna be asking is, so what is your ultimate spiritual authority? Is it what you think? Is it what the culture thinks? Is it what makes sense to you? Is it what people tell you? Is it what the media, like what is your ultimate authority? And to help you get at this question, I am going to talk about a very explosive topic. And I've chosen this specifically because we could talk about a million topics. Uh, And and I could illustrate this a million ways. Say what's your authority? Uh, what's your ultimate, and I could illustrate with a million, but I'm gonna pick one that's one of the hottest buttons in our culture right now because I think it will help us faster than any other issue. Help us to identify what is our ultimate authority. Really, not what it should be, but what it actually is, right? And so the topic I wanna tackle, just real quickly, is human sexuality, right? When it comes to human sexuality, what do you believe is re- was right, what do you believe is good, what do you believe is true, in the area of human sexuality. So over the course of my life, I've seen a tremendous cultural shift in our paradigms of human sexuality, right? We've gone through a major sexual revolution that started back in the 60s and continues uh, to this day, right? And so the question is, is, is that good or bad? So at this point, I'm not, I'm not weighing in. I'm just saying, is it good or bad? And how do you decide if it's good or bad? So for example, in our pro- the prevailing cultural view right now, this would definitely be the politically the correct view, the view that's constantly expressed to us, uh, say, in government, um, in legislation, in media, in business, in corporate policy, and so it's constantly, uh, is that I wanna say that there, um, I I wanna describe it this way, that when it comes to human sexuality, there are three things that do not matter, all right? And so you might wanna jot these down. Three things that do not matter. This is kind of the prevailing view of our culture today. Uh, The first thing that doesn't matter is with whom you have sex. It's really who you have sex with, all right? But for the English teachers, with whom. so the prevailing is it doesn't really matter who you have sex with. Uh, it doesn't matter whether it's uh, man or woman or both. Uh, it's up to you and just whatever feels right to you. Right? The second thing that doesn't matter is how many people you have sex with. 
So whether it's over the course of a lifetime or in a single sexual encounter, doesn't matter how many. Uh, number three, the third thing that doesn't matter is when you have sex. Before marriage, after marriage, during marriage, with, with who you're married to, outside. The only thing that matters in the prevailing view right now is that everyone who's involved in this sexual activity agrees on what's happening. Everyone's good with that. So if we're all adults, or maybe if we're even minors, but we're both minors, um, the, the one thing we don't feel good about is, you know, minors with adults. But, um, but as long as everyone is, let's say, consenting adults, we're all agree on that, that all sex is good sex. That's sort of our kind of prevailing view in our culture. Along with that, in our culture today, we're being, uh, the, the cultural view is that when it comes to uh, biological sex and gender, that these things um, can be altered at will according to what you want. And so you can select your gender, you can select your biological, there's no, there's, no ne- uh, there's no necessary connection between gender and biological sex, and you can switch or choose whichever you want. That would be the prevailing view. So again, I- I'm not really weighing in on this at this point, I'm just describing. This would be the prevailing view. Now the question I have for you then is how do you decide if that cultural view is true or false, right or wrong, good or evil? How do you decide? I think what we could say clearly is that the biblical view, the Jesus view, the apostolic view is diametrically opposed to that, right? So he could say that just in a nutshell, the biblical view would be of, you know, of, of the Bible in general, of Jesus, of the apostles, is that, that, that sex is a great gift that is created by God to unite one man with one woman for a lifetime of love and commitment and with what we call marriage, and to create a safe place to raise children where it can be healthy, where they can thrive. It's sort of the biblical view. And that any kind of sexuality out of that, outside of that, whether it's heterosexual, same-sexual, what any, it doesn't really matter, any kind of sex outside of that would be violate God's vision, his standard, and be ultimately destructive to our lives. Right? Now, I would be the first to not only admit, but to trumpet that as the church of Jesus, we have often butchered that message. We have often communicated it in the worst possible way. We have often taken very complex issues and tried to be very, answer them very simplistic answers. And we have often treated some sin as worse than other sin in the sexual realm and been completely hypocritical. Would you agree with me on that? Yeah. So, but the message is clear. The teaching of Jesus the Bible is clear that God loves us. He has a vision, and his vision is to restore and to heal all things broken, including our sexuality. He loves us. And he cares. He's passionate about this. He's passionate about us. And so you've got two diametrically opposed visions of human sexuality. But the reason I'm bringing this up is not so much to talk about sexuality as to talk about authority and say, so for you, how do you decide 
which vision, which standards, which path is right and true and good. And if you can tell me how you decide, then we're getting very close to discovering your ultimate authority. Are you with me? You following this? So, so you can say, hey, well, my ultimate authority is how I feel. My ultimate authority is what the culture around me says. The ultimate authority is what my professors say. The ultimate authority is what media says. The ultimate authority is popular. Or is your ultimate authority King Jesus? And what King Jesus says. Now here, now what I'm, I, I hope you're catching this. I'm not railing on you. If you have a different authority, that's for a different day. All I want you to do is, is to be radically honest with yourself and say, what is your ultimate authority? Because we could, we could go on, we could, we could multiply this illustration out in a million areas. We could talk, for example, we could talk, for example, what do you believe about God and what God is like? We could talk about Jesus. What do you believe about Jesus? We could talk about what do you believe when Jesus said he's the only way? Do you think he's the only way or just one way? We could talk about life and death issues. What do, when do you believe life? What, do you, what about life, uh, life before birth? What, uh, uh, you know, about uh, when, when life begins? What do you believe about euthanasia and our control? We could talk about finances. We could talk about parenting. We could talk about marriage or divorce or remarriage. We could talk about priorities or habits or values. We could pick any one of these areas and say, okay, what does the culture say and what does Jesus, the Bible, the apostle? We could pick any one of those. See, this isn't, an issue, this isn't an issue of one issue. The only reason I chose human sexuality is because it highlights it faster than anything else because this is the one area where our culture is trying to conform us to its mold with great intensity. And so it's easy for us to tell, like, well, what, where do we stand? What is our ultimate authority? And again, you say, why is this important? It's important because if you choose the wrong authority, you're in for a long, hard life, right? If you choose the wrong authority, your mind will not be renewed and you will not experience metamorphosis. You will not experience what is good and right and true. You will not experience this will of God, which is good, it's pleasing, it's perfect. See, this was the issue, and this is why Paul starts his letter by Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God because this was the issue in their life. But in a sense, it's an issue for every one of our lives, isn't it? Who is the ultimate authority? Is it King Jesus or is it something or someone else? And the way we answer that question will determine our spiritual future. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we've talked about some heavy things today, but some exciting things too, things that open up a, a door for transformation, a renewing of our minds, a whole new life, a life that's good, that's pleasing, that's perfect. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us the courage to ask this question, this radical question, who is our ultimate authority, and to be radically honest, and then to wrestle with that, 
as followers of Jesus and then surrender unto your leadership as our true king so we can experience this metamorphosis that you came and die that we might experience. And as we continue our worship now, as we celebrate the faith once delivered to your people, we pray that you would come and you'd meet us in a powerful way as we worship. We pray you use these gifts, these tithes, these offerings to advance the kingdom of King Jesus. And we pray it in your name, amen. Would you stand with me? I believe, I believe in the name of Jesus. I believe in the Father. I believe in the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the communion of his church laid on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Amen? You know, it's interesting because sometimes, you know, people will say, hey, times have changed and uh, they have. They're much better than when the gospel was presented. Uh, sometimes people will say, well, hey, these were things that were written long ago, but we're told in his word that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know, last night when we were worshiping and that song came on, a passage came to my mind. It's written by a man named Jude. And uh, he was a half-brother of Jesus. And he wrote just a little, like, one-chapter letter at the back of our New Testament. Um, doesn't get a lot of print. And, um, but in, in verse 3, this is what he says. He says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation that we share, I felt compelled to write and to urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. You catch that? He says, I, I wanted to talk, but they were under false teaching. False teachers were coming. He said, I, I wanted just to write about this incredible salvation that God has provided, what it means. But he said, but I felt compelled. I've got to contend for the message of Jesus. So it was once for all delivered. It's under attack in your church. And so we live in the midst of a culture that's rapidly changing. But as followers of Jesus, we're called to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered by the ultimate word of God who came to share with us the message, the way, the truth, and the life. Not just the way to the next life, but the way to life itself. The one who came to heal and restore and transform every area of our life to become the people we were created to be. Amen? And so this week, may you be a person that increasingly is coming under the authority of our King. Your ultimate authority is not what you think, not your experience. It's not what you've been told or what culture says or the way you were brought up. But your ultimate authority is your Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ, the ruler of all creation, the, the, the creator of the universe, who alone knows how life is designed and how it's wired. And then in every area of our life, we would not be conformed to culture, but we'd be renewed by the transformation of our minds so we can experience the will of God, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. Amen? God bless you as you go. Prayer at the sides if you need it. I'll see you next week.